Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're now one week into Joe Biden's presidency, and the new administration is already putting into action its plans for the COVID-19 pandemic. This includes the appointments of several key members of President Biden's new COVID-19 response team. My colleague Anderson Cooper and I had the chance to talk to a few members of that team at a CNN town hall. And today, I've decided to share some of what they told us about the challenges that still lie ahead and their plans to bring this pandemic to an end. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Will we feel um, as if we have the herd immunity that everybody has been talking about by the end of the first 100 days? Um, I told you I'd tell you the truth. I don't think we're going to feel it then. I think we're still going to have, after we vaccinate 100 million Americans, we're going to have 200 million more that we're going to need to vaccinate. That's Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's the new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, talking to Anderson Cooper and me on CNN last night. We spoke at length with Dr. Walensky, And also Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's the nation's leading infectious disease expert, as you certainly know by now. Also joining us was Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, head of the new COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force at the Department of Health and Human Services. Here's some of what we discussed about the Biden administration's plan to get this pandemic under control. There remain questions about the announcement yesterday that COVID vaccine allocations for states would increase by about 16 percent starting next week. How is that going to be possible next week when it wasn't possible this week? And where is the extra vaccine coming from? Anderson, it isn't a question of extra vaccine coming from. The flow of vaccine that has been coming in on what the person responsible for it, General Gus Perna, calls a cadence that's coming in. Right now we're having, and what the president was referring to, is that a steady, reliable flow will come in that he'd like to get them up to about 10 million per week. It's right now somewhere, I believe, around 8.5 million. He wants to get it up to around 10. And you can do that by efficiencies, by paying attention to anything that might get in the way of that and to try and get it smoothly into the flow. So it isn't a question of getting vaccine that wasn't there before that's there now. It's an even flow, which we believe we can accomplish. Um, Dr. Walensky, uh, the the latest numbers reported by the CDC say that in total, more than 47 million vaccine doses have been distributed, but fewer than 25 million have been administered. Are states holding on to vaccine to ensure that second dose? So a couple of things with regard to the the distribution and how much has been administered and then the holding on. First of all, the distribution, those 47 million doses that you talk about, um, some of those have just arrived today or yesterday. Some of them are in the several day long distribution process to get them to the final state where they will actually be be, um, administered into the arms. So there is some delay from the time that they're distributed into the time that they could possibly be administered. On the administration side, 
there is some delay in reporting. We know that um, probably a bit more than the 23 million that have been reported have actually been administered. And then there are some doses that we need to make sure um, for the four or five day window that we give people in order to get their second shot, either at three weeks or at four weeks, we need to make sure that that's available for them when they return for their second shot. Um, when you do all that math, you still end up with some millions of doses that are sitting on the shelves and have not yet been administered. And in fact, that's one of the bottlenecks and one of the ways that we have to get resources to the states to make sure that they can quickly administer the vaccines that are on their shelves. So I just want to be clear. So some states, if they're holding on to that second dose, that seems like it would be a good idea, right? Because they want to ensure that they're going to have it for the people who got the first shot. Is that the right, right approach? I don't want to imply that the people are sitting, uh, the states are sitting on doses for weeks and weeks. There is some period of time, a grace period between in that 21 days or that 28 days where people are coming in expecting to get that second shot. And we believe that we should be following the FDA uh, authorization for both of these vaccines. And we need to make sure that that vaccine is available when those people come in. And so we are ensuring that that vaccine is available for the second shots of both Pfizer and Moderna. And Dr. Fauci, it was discussed today at the, the coronavirus briefing and the White House press briefing, President Biden has invoked the Defense Production Act to ramp up, amongst other things, making syringes and other equipment to put shots in arms, not yet for making more vaccine shots for themselves. Why, why is that? Well, as you probably also heard, Anderson, that the uh, arrangement, the contractual arrangement now has been made with both Moderna and with Pfizer to get an additional 100 million doses apiece, both from Pfizer and Moderna. They previously had a contractual arrangement, which is now being enacted with what we're talking about now, of giving 200 million apiece, which would be 400 million. So right now, with Moderna and Pfizer, with the new promise of an additional 100, we should have 600 million doses a vaccine from the two companies. But that won't be too like the summer, And that's not yet counted. Right, exactly. And that's the way we're going to be rolling it out. And, 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 and the flow of the vaccines that will be coming out will be able to get the people vaccinated in an orderly way. So there really isn't a need now. If you want to do the Defense Production Act to make another company make more vaccine, I think what people don't appreciate how exquisitely sensitive and difficult that process is. You just can't open up another factory from a company that isn't Moderna or isn't Pfizer and say make mRNA vaccine. It's just not going to happen that way because of the process is one that is difficult in the sense of starting from scratch. You know, Dr. Walensky, we did a CNN analysis and we found that somewhere between 12 percent and about a third of Americans probably have some protection against COVID-19. That's through vaccination, uh, but also obviously from the growing number of people who've actually gotten infected and then recovered with the virus. Currently, about 6% of the population has been vaccinated. Is that where you hope we would be by now? And when you add the number of Americans vaccinated after the first 100 days, where will we be? I mean, is that, that's not going to be enough, but will the country feel different or, or, or feel different or be more normal? 
you know, I think it's going to take a while for us to feel like we're back to our, a sense of normalcy. After the first 100 days, I think we'll get 100 million vaccines into people's arms. That'll be protection for perhaps about 50 million. Some people will be after two doses. Some people, people will st still be in the process of getting their second dose. And so, you know, we are working to figure out where the bottlenecks are and to resolve those bottlenecks. But it's going to take some time to get 300 million Americans vaccinated twice. Do you count the people who've been infected and have protection as, as toward that herd immunity? If a third of the country has antibodies as a result of infection, does that, does that count towards herd immunity? You know, the, the guidance right now is that even if you've had infection before, we would still recommend a vaccine. We're asking people to wait 90 days from the time that they were infected. We don't know a lot about the long-term immunity um, of this disease, so we are still recommending it. Um, as I think about herd immunity and how many people we need to be get vaccinated, we need to get an awful lot of people vaccinated. I don't necessarily want to put a number on it, especially as we think about this um, variant from the UK, mm. where there may be increased transmissibility. We might need more herd immunity than we really thought. In my mind, everybody should be rolling up their sleeve. And, and Dr. Fetcher, you spoke today about the efficacy of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines against new coronavirus variants, saying that both vaccines should still offer protection. Are you more confident in their uh, efficacy against the variant first found in the UK than against the South African variant? And also, I know the Brazilian yeah. variant, I think, has only been one case in the U.S., but that also seems inevitable. Or, or am I wrong? Yeah, I, you know, a lot, uh, no, a lot of people are, are going to be confused about this. So if you look at it, when we talk about the vaccines that we currently are utilizing, the Moderna and the Pfizer, and you look at the antibodies that are induced by them and match them in vitro in a neutralizing assay in a test tube, there appears to be really very good and very little impact when you're looking at the UK 117 lineage, as we refer to that. So there should not be an issue there. So that, just the in, in layman's pudding, terms, that means the vaccine works against the UK variant. Yeah, well, be careful. It means that in the in vitro um, uh, indication, it should work. We haven't proven yet okay. that it does. It should work. Dr. Walensky, I do want to uh, ask a couple questions about schools. We got a ton of questions about schools, and this one's from Elisa, who writes this. I am a teacher. I'm doing everything I can so that I do not catch this virus. Unfortunately, the school district I work for wants to send me back into the classroom with very few protective measures in place. What will the Biden administration do to help teachers stay safe? Um, I would say, according to the um, ACIP guidelines, uh, you would be among those who should be eligible for vaccination. So if that's eligible in your state, please go ahead and see if you can go and get yourself vaccinated. Um, the Biden administration has very much said and emphasized the importance of getting our children back to school and opening schools. That said, the CDC guidance really says if you are in a, an area of the country that, has, uh, that is hot, that has an extraordinarily high COVID burden, that we should probably be careful in terms of how we get our kids back to school. And we need to make sure as we get our kids back to school that we have the resources to do so. We need to make sure that we have de-densified our classrooms, we have proper ventilation, proper masking and mitigation procedures so that we can safely get our kids back to school. There have been several CDC studies that have demonstrated um, that schools are generally safe places to be, although all of those studies, or at least two of those studies, have 
demonstrated um, that when there's a lot of masking going on and when um, there hasn't been that much disease prevalence in the community. The, the, the study, I think one of the studies you're talking about just released yesterday found that the risk uh, of, of transmission in the classroom was, was minimal. And I was really struck by the fact that it was so much lower than the surrounding community, nearly 40% lower in the school versus in the community. I mean, doesn't that suggest that schools could in fact be safer than uh, the general community? Yeah, you're referring to a study out of Wisconsin. It was over 4,000 children and over 600 teachers. That study, the time period of that study, part of it was during a time of low prevalence and part of it was during a time of high prevalence. What we know is it's probably um, less disease transmission in schools than in the community. But if you're talking about a high prevalence community, you're going to still have um, high transmission in the schools. It'll just be less than in the community. So in those situations, we really need to ensure um, a lot of mitigation procedures. There was a lot of mass compliance in that Wisconsin study, and we need to just make sure that we can uh, get the community spread down so we can get our kids back. Is there a federal plan to, in place to, to get schools open? Because in some places like Clark County, Nevada, a disturbing rise in student uh, suicides pushed officials there to expedite getting their students back into classrooms. Yes, there, there is a federal plan. The, the federal plan is linked to both having the resources for the school, which is why we so badly need the American Rescue Plan to be um, funded so that we have resources for mitigation, for ventilation, for PPE, for all of these things. And then importantly, for testing. It's going to be a really key part of getting our children back to school is to do testing among teachers and among children. And um, the funding for that testing is all in this American Rescue Plan. Do you worry we may start seeing more of that among kids who are out of school in other places around the country. I mean, it, there's often kind of a contagion effect. I absolutely worry about that. I worry about food insecurity. I worry about teenage pregnancy. I worry about uh, kids falling behind in their academics. I worry about the whole package, which is why it's so very critical that schools be the first thing to open and, in my mind, the last thing to close. Should people be wearing masks like N95 masks and other types of masks when they are uh, out in public? I've noticed you've been wearing two masks lately, uh, for example. Should there be N95 masks for, for everyone? The most important thing is that everybody should be wearing a mask. The CDC does not recommend that you must wear two masks, nor does the CDC recommend that you have to wear an N95 mask. They just say the most important thing is get everybody to wear a mask. And I, I, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Walensky, because she and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> That's exactly right. So everybody should be wearing a mask. Um, everybody, if you're wearing a cloth mask, it should be a multi-layered mask so that you have several layers of protection for a single mask. And there are certainly um, ongoing studies evaluating the, the protective efficacy of these masks, especially in the context of these new variants we're seeing. And so we'll see more data on that to come. Does it make sense, Dr. Walensky, to for the federal government to send out masks to American households? You know, it's not entirely clear to me that the reason that people aren't wearing masks is because they don't have access to them. Certainly, I would, I would highly advocate for those in uh, areas where they're under-resourced and they can't um, purchase masks or they don't have access to masks. We need to make sure that people have the adequate protection. But it's not entirely clear in my mind that the, um, the challenge with mask wearing has been one of access. Yeah. Dr. Walensky, before we get back to your questions, there's CNN reporting that the Biden administration is considering COVID testing for domestic travel here in the U.S. 
That's according to a federal official that said the government is, quote, actively looking at the possibility. Is, can you speak to that? Is that, a, is that wise? Is that going to happen? Well, so I think when we think about international travel, we've had stronger guidelines now on international travel requiring uh, tests three days before and self-quarantine, as well as a test three to five days after self-quarantine for seven days. Um, I want to emphasize that now is not the time to be traveling, period, um, internationally or domestically. It's just not a good time to be traveling. Um, as part of the uh, American Rescue Act, they, we have a budget for a lot more testing. Much of that budget is going to be testing in school. Schools. Um, but I would really like to see much of that budget, and I think the Biden administration as well, to use it for high-risk activities. And one of those high-risk activities would be for travel, uh, uh, domestic flights. Dr. Fauci, let, let's get back to some uh, viewer questions. Um, Carol, who is a grandmother of five from Virginia Beach, sent in this video. One of the worst parts about the pandemic is not being able to travel freely to see our grandchildren. My husband and I just got the first dose of the Moderna vaccine, and on February 19th, we'll get the second dose. When will we have immunity, and when will we be able to travel? Now, we just heard Dr. Walensky say now is not the time to be traveling, but, but what about this type of situation yeah. specifically? Well, you know, what the uh, person who, who called that question in said, when will they have immunity? Well, you can get some degree of protection, some degree that isn't durable, you know, a 10 days to 14 days after the first dose, but you can't rely on that. The maximum immunity begins about 10 days to two weeks and beyond following the second dose. That goes for anyone, regardless of whether you want to travel or not. That would give you, as a group, about a 94 to 95% efficacy and a good safety profile. The situation, though, does not change what Dr. Walensky said, that it is not a good idea to travel, period. I mean, if you absolutely have to travel and it's essential, then obviously one would have to do that. But we don't want people to think because they got vaccinated, then other public health recommendations just don't apply. One of the biggest things that are really not well understood is people ask, why should I even have to wear a mask after I get my second shot? And the reason is very clear that the primary endpoint of the vaccine trial was clinically apparent infection. So you could conceivably get infected, get no symptoms, and still have virus in your nasopharynx, which means that you would have to wear a mask to prevent you from infecting someone else, as well as the other side of the coin, well, you may not be totally protected yourself. Dr. Rochelle Walensky and Dr. Anthony Fauci, we so appreciate you uh, being with us. Thank you. As I said, I want to bring in Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, chair of the president's COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. You said earlier today that it takes intention and deliberate action to advance equity in this vaccine distribution process. When you look at the disparities in vaccination among races, a CNN analysis of data from 14 states found vaccine coverage twice as high among white people on average than it is among black and Latino people. What do you hope to do as head of the equity task force? How do you combat those types of disparities? We have to do so much work to disrupt this predictability of, you know, disproportionate impact. And, you know, in this case, disproportionate access to vaccine. You know, if we think specifically about the numbers you just quoted, because 
CNN analysis as well as Kaiser Health News and others have found sort of this similar pattern already emerging across the country. We know part of this has to do with vaccine acceptance, and we have to build vaccine confidence. That's part of our work. But a lot of this has to do with access. I mean, it's a great example what's happening in New York right now. We have to make vaccination easy and accessible. Um, That's a key priority that's built into President Biden's national plan in a multi-component, multi-pronged way, that vaccination is easy to obtain. And when people cannot get to these new vaccination sites that are being stood up, that we bring the vaccine to them and that vaccines are are free. So that's one of the most important things we need to do is focus on equitable access to vaccines. Lawrence Gaston, he's a professor of global health law at Georgetown University. He said this the other day. He said, having a racial preference for the COVID-19 vaccine is not only ethnic, uh, ethically permissible, but an ethical imperative. Should race be a factor in terms of where what place in line you are with regard to the vaccine. We have to be extremely targeted and prioritize the hardest hit communities. You know, that's no question. And, you know, as I've said, we have to be intentional and deliberate about that. We know that when we see these disparities in race, it has to do with you know, what creates risk for exposure as well as risk for severity. Mm. Um, And both of those are, quite frankly, tied to underlying social factors. You know, risk for exposure goes back to that overrepresentation in frontline, you know, healthcare workers, for example, or essential workers. When we think about risk for severity, it's the fact that so many people of color in our country are living with multiple chronic diseases because of the chronic uh, inability to access uh, high-quality health care. So prioritizing what drives the risk specifically um, is what has been at the center of ACIP's guidelines. And I think that makes sense. And certainly when we look at something like the Social Vulnerability Index at the CDC, you know, race is one of the factors that goes into that index. I want to get some questions from our viewers. Lonnie in Texas sent in a video. The church plays a large role in the Black community and communities of color. And I'm wondering if you have considered involving the ministers and leaders in our communities of color in this endeavor. Yeah, great. I'm so glad to have a chance to speak to this. You know, when we talk about building vaccine confidence in particular, what we know and what the science tells us, you know, people will have reasonable questions. They deserve clear and consistent answers. But who answers them also matters a great deal. It is just fundamental to our work that we partner with local communities, with community leaders. Faith leaders are a great example of some of those trusted messengers it's our responsibility to make sure those trusted messengers have the information, you know, that they need. And we are already working in close partnership with many coalitions of faith leaders. This is just key in getting the word out. And also back to that question of access. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, as we seek to target communities that have been hardest hit, it's important that people have vaccination opportunities in their neighborhoods. And so that when they, you know, are ready and it's their turn and they're at yes, that they can get vaccinated in a space where they're very comfortable. Yeah. Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. I promise you we're going to have many more conversations like this one over the next several months as we learn about the White House's COVID-19 strategy. There is still a long road ahead when it comes to vaccine distribution controlling the spread of the virus. 
and working to heal the country after such a devastating year. I'll be talking more about the new administration's coronavirus plans on this week's episode of Politically Sound with CNN Senior Political Director David Chalian and CNN Senior Political Reporter Nia Malika Henderson. You can also listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.